Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Our guest today is Klaus Busset. Klaus has spent his entire career with Chrysler, first as Daimler, then Chrysler, and now FCA. He moved up the ranks over 22 years from design manager, chief designer, VP of interior design for the brands Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Ram, and the heart-pounding SRT. And now, he's currently the VP of design for Fiat, Abarth, Lancia, Alfa Romeo, and the beautiful Maserati for FCA in Italy. He was an integral part of creating and improving the interiors for Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, and Ram. He started in Stuttgart, Germany, then lived in the Motor City before moving to Turin, Italy for the past two years. He is a master of interior design. His dedication to focusing on craftsmanship, materials, and technology have raised the bar at FCA where he continues to push the limits of the interior experience for these automobiles. So make yourself comfortable. Let's get our interview with Klaus Busse started. Today we welcome our good friend Klaus Busse to the Perception Podcast. Welcome, Klaus. Hey guys, good to see you, good to talk to you. Thanks so much for doing this, we, we so appreciate it. Oh, absolutely, no, it's a pleasure. I've been, uh, you know, love working with you guys, love talking to you guys, so this is an absolute pleasure for me. It's great to uh, see you uh, via Skype. We'll just get going. I'm sure everybody's going to be interested about your background. So let's start off with, uh, just tell us a little bit about uh, where you're from, where you grew up, your education. Yeah, as you can, you know, probably hear by the, by the accent and by the name, I, I, was, um, I was born in Germany. In a rural area, uh, nothing, nothing exciting except uh, two times a year during the Cold War we had military exercises, so I got to enjoy planes and helicopters. That's where I was, grew up with basically. Um, I then went to uh, England, uh, Coventry, um, to do my design studies. Uh, wasn't quite as simple as you know jumping from a village in Germany to to England. It was a little bit of a winding road. Um, you know, art school first, and some industrial design, then a quick internship with Mercedes very early, actually before I studied. But eventually ended up in in, in England in Coventry to do my transportation design, and then then from there I uh, you know got my first job in uh, Mercedes Benz in Stuttgart. Great. So what set you on your career path in automotive? Did you just love cars from a young age? You know, uh, like I said, I was always in, uh, inspired by, by, by these machines, you know, and like, like I said, uh, all I had at that day were, you know, either farm tractors or tanks like twice a year. Um, but, but really it was, I think it was in hindsight, it were these TV shows I was watching. I was consuming everything that had a hero car, whether it was, uh, uh, you know, of course, Magnum PI, it was mm-hmm. uh, My Device with the Ferraris, right. Simon and Simon, I mean, anything that had a cool car in there, even, even you know, I was I was even uh, considering starting to smoke because there was a, there was a cigarette brand at that time it was called Lord. I don't think they exist even anymore. They had this amazing uh, campaign that always featured a, a white Lamborghini Countach. Uh, so every everything that had a car, I was just addicted to. Those things were like you know again, if you if you consider in the eighties growing up uh, in, in a rural area in Germany um, and seeing a car like that, it's 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 a UFO. So that that pretty much uh, got me hooked. Plus plus the name design was just cool. I think. I would have done anything with design. I would have become a hairdresser if you called me a hair designer. I guess it was just the coolness. It was just the coolness of the of the of the of being able to say I'm a designer, and then to actually figure out well, there's actually a combination of the of the two. There's this exciting automotive world, 
and you can be a designer in that world. I think that that really got me interested. And uh, even though the, the road to success was a bit winding, like I said, sure. I tried some art first and industrial design. But eventually I realized, no, you can actually design uh, automotive design. And, and that's what I did. So how did you get your first big break? Uh, you know what? I'm not. I don't think uh, when you look at my career, I, I I wouldn't say you know there's this one big car I've done. I think it was it was uh, I, I, my influence was 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 a different uh, kind of influence. Uh, it's hard to describe. I mean, I have to say when I when I joined Mercedes, um, I'm not going to admit what year it was, 1995, um, because that's long, long time ago. Uh, I was I was immediately successful there. I mean, I I, I was a rookie. I was there for a couple of months and. and and I was able to work at uh, the new SL, the, the only replaced not too long ago. And, and right away, I was able to work on a full-size exterior model and a full-size interior model. There was no other designer that had, uh, that had you know, a model interior and exterior. So coming out of school doing that um, also allowed me to um, work here in Italy because that's where Mercedes was doing their uh, exterior models at that time. So it was just amazing coming out of school and not only working for mercedes-benz but but be able to work on a project like the sl right out of the gate but i think in hindsight you know what it, what it taught me is more uh, subtle observations that that i didn't realize back then but but uh, helped me throughout my career I had, uh, number one i had amazing management stefan curlis i think he's now vice president for advances at mercedes Mikey Mauer, he was my uh, my manager at that time. He's now not only the head of Porsche design, but the head of uh, all of Volkswagen Group design. So I had some amazing managers that that really took me under the wings. But it was it was also a time where that Mercedes basically all Mercedes were designed done by three three designers. Everyone, 20, 30 designers, we all competed for it. But somehow magically, it always ended up with the same three guys. And that was something that that um, you know bothered a lot of us back then. And, and I think I learned a lot of things that later helped me to become a good manager, to make sure to share the love, to not have like the golden boy uh, culture and all these things. So again, uh, I think it wasn't so much about what I did, but what I learned during these days. That was that was fantastic throughout my career. And then of course at Chrysler meeting Ralph Gilles, uh, what an inspiring guy. So you spent. Uh... Ten years at Daimler in in, uh, in Germany, then another nine with Chrysler in Detroit, and then which later became FCA, of course. And now you're in Italy, continuing with FCA. What was it like, and and how were the car cultures different in each country? You know, um, I, I think the term car culture really um, became clear to me when I when I moved to the U.S. Sure, there were a couple of us designers who had cool cars in Germany, and there were a couple of car meets, but it was. It was not really, I wouldn't say, a scene or, or a culture. And then I, I, I came to uh, to Michigan, and maybe the top three emotion, one of the top three emotional moments of being in Michigan for ten years, one of them was at uh, Woodward Avenue in August of uh, 2005, standing there at that uh, six-lane street, seeing it packed with cars, all kinds, hot rods, supercars, vintage cars, modern cars. And it's the Woodward Dream Cruise, and they do that every year. And it's, I think uh, it's about 20,000 cars on that on that uh, avenue that goes all the way from Pontiac down to Detroit. Absolutely mind-blowing. And then I knew this is car culture. It's not like a couple of guys meeting at a parking lot. This is this is a culture. You know, in, in, in Germany, those those OEMs, they have probably the most beautiful museums. 
And in the US, apart from the Ford Museum, which is not so much about Ford, but more about culture, I'd say, in, in the US, they were really, there was the cars were actually on the street. And, and when you go to the museum, you smell the oil, the cars smell dead. And, but when you see them on the road, as we did uh, or we do every year in, in, in Michigan, that's absolutely mind blowing. So that, that's what I would call car culture. In Italy, I would say it's a little bit in between. Uh, here in Turin, the design valley, of course, we have the Alfisti, uh, so the Arbat fans. So that culture is very, very strong here. But in terms of a whole nation rallying behind the car, being proud to have the car, to not really have car jealousy, you can you can have a really nice car and the guy at the gas station gives you the thumbs up. That kind of culture was really unique to the U.S. What were some of the highlights of your uh, and projects when you were at Daimler? Well, certainly, uh, like I mentioned earlier, coming right out of school, working on the SL, and then we you know we worked on the Maybach or uh, a project that later became the Maybach. Um, there were. It, it was really um, those sports cars because I ended up being in that department where we where we dealt with the sports cars, the SLK, the second generation SLK interior, where I was the lead designer. And then um, once I was promoted manager, I was I was working on the next generation SL. And again, it was um, you know within the span of of my career at Mercedes, out of school, working the SL, and then getting promoted to manager and actually be responsible for the development of the SL project. Unfortunately. Um, before I can go on bragging about it, unfortunately, that project at that time got cancelled, which then was also one of the reasons I, I said, "Okay, I need something else," and that's why I moved to the U.S. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was it was a good, it was a great school. I mean, the guys at Mercedes they really know what they're doing. I had I had the pleasure to work with some amazing uh, people. Uh, Gordon, of course, Gordon Wagner, the current head of Mercedes, he was my peer at that time. Great guy. He's doing a fantastic job, I think, right now at Mercedes. So it was overall really a great experience that, that helped me to grow into this person uh, that I became later. Certainly during the time in the U.S., obviously those 10 years, uh, I ended up uh, focusing on interior. And that was not so much really a career choice. It was just when I, when I did that exchange, they said, you know what, we were pretty confident with what we do exterior-wise. But uh, on the interior side, we know we can do a better job. And, and that goes all the way back. 2005, when uh, the interiors we had back then were pretty much, um, you know, olive gray uh, plastic boxes. And uh, during those 10 years at Mercedes, uh, sorry, at um, Mercedes before, but then at uh, the US side, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, SRT, etc., um, I was able to work, you know, with Ralph to cre- recreate basically uh, not only interiors, I would say, for our group, but I think we also. Um, kind of inspired a little bit our, our rivals across town, and, and uh, you now really saw you saw a resurgence in interior design and quality, not only at our company but uh, in all of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it was it was uh, of course a journey that had many many phases. I mean, ten years is a long time, and in the beginning it was just fundamentals to just make uh, simple things as plastic look look good. Uh, you know, to have someone say this is good plastic and not cheap plastic, even though it's, it's absolutely the same material. But I remember this moment when I was actually with my family at uh, in Lake at Lake Michigan, the Sweetwater Lake, where they have beautiful, you know, these water-shaped stones with you know, seashells. And I was holding one of these stones in my hand, and I thought, oh, this this thing really feels good. And why is it? It's not leather wrapped. It's not out of cast skin. It's it's just a rock rock hard object, mm-hmm. but it's perfect shape. You know, perfect radius, great nice grain. And I took this, uh, this stone back to the office and said, you know, scan the stone for me. I, I want to see it in 3D. 
uh, on the screen. And we, we then used the stone, we applied this shape of that stone to actually some secondary, almost um, subconscious touch zones in the car. For example, the, 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 the switch that opens the, the armrest glove box on all US products, mostly Jeeps, but also other products, were basically shaped after that stone from Lake Michigan. The edge of the map pocket uh, in the door was shaped after that stone from Lake Michigan. And we gave we gave plastic that, that shape, and, and it turned out to be the perfect shape. I mean, you can drive that car, you, you, you touch that switch that before was a thin piece of plastic with a parting line, and now had this really rich, thick feel. And subconsciously, the whole car started to become, you know, felt more like quality and all started with with you know uh, sitting at a beach and, and holding that stone in my hand and then the journey continued we we started uh, to tell stories uh, we started to invent uh, what we call the color around the world philosophy more deep and we realized that the jeep color and trim should not be inspired by man-made fashion but it should be inspired by something bigger something more deep something that is more eternal uh, which which of course is nature uh, we looked at um, local um, beautiful things in the U.S., like the Grand Canyon, but we also took inspiration from our international travels, and we took those colors and those materials into our Jeep products and even created packages with, with the names of the locations we went to, which, which went on to become a real cool commercial success and a great a commercial story. And then, of course, you know, when we, when we had so much fun with these Easter eggs, uh, you know, hiding little fun details in our interiors, not just Jeep, where, where of course, we did quite a lot excessive, maybe even, but uh, in, a, in, the, in, the, in the SRT Viper, which then became the Dodge Viper again, you know, you have these cubby bins, and uh, have, we have these rubber mats in there, and, and before, they're just cheap pieces of plastic or rubber, and then we embossed uh, racetracks on there, and we did the two racetracks where the Viper at that point was holding the production car lab record, Nürburgring in the door, and then in the tunnel we did Laguna Seca. And suddenly this piece of plastic became a collector's item. Uh, and just because we, we did something that absolutely uh, cost nothing, but it just added so much uh, storytelling and value to the car, just by, by you know giving a shit, by, by being passionate about details. So that was just a wonderful uh, journey, you know. I love uh, the, the Easter eggs within all the different cars and how, you know, uh, it influenced you and your team to come up with these uh, very interesting ideas. I, I, I remember hearing something about uh, the movie Wally influencing the Renegade interior a little bit. <laughs> that is true, because uh, when we did the Renegade interior, we were struggling with, with a package, because if you stack all these things uh, vertically, uh, like the AC outlet, the screen, uh, you, you, you create quite a tall instrument panel. On, on some of the larger cars, we put the AC outlets left and right of the screen that, that allows us to pre preserve a slim appearance, a, a slim uh, volume. But on the, the Renegade being more narrow, we couldn't do that. So we had we had to deal with these AC outlets on the top of the instrument panel. And we finally thought, you know what, let's, let's embrace that. Let's make that a story. Let's make it a cool thing. And so we just started uh, sketching and, and suddenly looked like Wally from from uh, from the movie or like E.T., if someone even called it. And it became it became almost like this beautiful character, almost like um, you know, like uh, we couldn't take dogs or cats to school uh, to to work, but it became our little pet, almost like, hey, how's Wally doing today? And you're, it became this lovingly character, and within the car, versus before it was just an obstacle. So we we, we took a, a package challenge, uh, we took that opportunity and turned it into, I think, a pretty cool story. The maps that are hidden throughout, you know. Um 
and, and the date uh, in the Jeep, things like that. Are there any Easter eggs? As you know, I, I still have my 2010 Jeep SRT, by the way. So any Easter eggs in that besides the, uh, the engine being a demon? <laughs> no, but I can tell you if you if you uh, get yourself into a compass, um, there is an amazing Easter egg story that has not been told yet. That, that is one we actually really kept secret. And it's more than just uh, one detail. It's actually um, you, you, you have to find more than one detail. You have to find many details and you have to make sense of how they correlate and what they mean in context. And that, that leads you to another clue and then you need, another, you need to find another detail. So... Uh, the compass has probably the most complex Easter egg story we ever conceived and, and the most secretive at this point. So have fun with that one. Oh, that's interesting. All right, I'm headed to, headed to the dealer. <laughs> <laughs> so, Klaus, the three of us are big car fanatics. Give us your top five favorite cars you did and did not work on. Um, you know, that's a good question, the top five cars. Um, I'm First of all, maybe to, to your... Uh, disappointment. I'm, I'm not a vintage car guy. I appreciate vintage cars. I love vintage cars to look at, and I'm, I'm I, I love when other people drive them. But I'm just not. I, I'm just this guy. I love the the, the, the technology we have in our modern cars. So uh, I, I would probably stick with modern cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would start with something we did here not too long ago, which is the the, the Cinquecento, the Fiat 500 Riva. Of course, the, the current Cinquecento we launched uh, in its original form in 2007. So can take any credit for that beautiful car, but uh, the Riva version and Riva is that is that beautiful wooden yacht builder that we have here in San Nico. Uh, is similar to in the U.S. maybe to Chris Craft boat actually. Yep. There's a link between the two, and we did we did a cooperation with with Riva, and they they would not cooperate with any luxury maker. But, but the, the 500, the Cinquecento, they 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 just thought that would be an awesome opportunity. So we created this really cute. Uh, vehicle that the 500 Riva that was that was certainly uh, would be on my list. And then on the other extreme, uh, one of my first company's car, cars that I drove here like last year again didn't work on it, but uh, have have the pleasure to work on it on its you know next gen I would say is of course the new Alfa Romeo Giulia in the Quattrofolio version, 505 horse, 4.9 seconds. That thing. It's the closest thing I think you can get to driving a Ferrari without driving a Ferrari and still have your kids in the back. That thing is just absolutely unbelievable. And I would say that whether I would work with a company or not, that thing, I've driven many cars, also competitive products, but that thing is, is, is absolutely wrong. If you, if you don't just laugh and giggle once you drive that car, something is really absolutely wrong. <laughs> uh, talking talk about Ferrari, of course, uh, you know, the big brother, the I haven't driven the 488, so I, I can't I can say um, how that feels, but I've driven the Italia, the 458. And, and I would say that's that's the only car I would take over the Julia when it comes to performance. But it's a two-seater. The Julia is a four-seater. It's a, you can you can take the whole family, the Italia. Oh, my God. Uh, when, you, 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 when, when you drive that car, you understand what Italian cars are all about. Uh, I mean, it's literally like you need a cigarette when, when you're done driving that thing. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, the sound of the engine, you know. Which one was um, that? Your sound went a little low. Did you say the Italia? That was the that was the Italia, the four five eight. In in Las Vegas, uh, Jeremy and I got to drive one for for something we were doing with the Speed Channel back in the day, and uh, I probably took that thing to about one hundred and ninety. Um, I shouldn't admit that because it was it was a rental, but uh, but it's already been returned and cleaned and everything else. So, uh, but yeah, it was it was it was uh, beautiful, and I definitely needed a cigarette after that drive. There you go. There you go. <laughs>
And uh, what other two cars I would pick? I would probably also throw in, again, another extreme, the Wrangler. Um, if you have the chance to ever go to Moab or Rubicon or just some really hardcore off-roading, there's just no other vehicle on the planet that can do what the Wrangler does. And uh, while on, on an Italia or the Giulia, you're the king of the track, uh, with the Wrangler, you're just the king off-road. Uh, and, and the crazy stuff you can do in that car is just, you know, you... To, to be in a car and barely move and yet be scared shitless, that's, that's something. You know, you don't have to go to Sonoma and turn one full speed to be scared, but to actually crawl at, at less than walking speed and then be, be scared because you're on a, on a high cliff or on a, on a really treacherous uh, trail, uh, that's really special with the Wrangler. And then, and then yeah. uh, I just love the Maserati Gran Cabrio. I mean, there's, there's, I don't think there's anything uh, where you can travel with four people, no roof in style with a V8 engine from Ferrari like you can with a Maserati Cabrio. So that would be my dessert. Nice. So can you share with us what's... Uh, I remember you having a, three, uh, a 300 SRT back when you were in Detroit. Um, what do you have in the garage now? Yeah, of course, I went all Italian now. Uh, and uh, except, except my daily driver, they actually all read. Um, my, my daily driver is the Stelvio, um, the new Alfa Romeo SUV that we launched recently. Um, that's, that's, that's actually quite a beauty. It's actually a great, um, and, and I want to say it in the correct way when I say compromise. Compromise is often perceived negatively, but uh, it, is a, it is the best of all things. You have, you have the SUV, but you have the handling of, the, of an Alfa Romeo for Julia. It's, it's a wonderful car that I truly enjoy. And then in the garage, I have uh, three toys for the weekend, and depending, literally depending on the weather and where we go. Uh, one is the, uh, the new Fiat 124 Spider, mm-hmm. the convertible, uh, which is which is mind-blowing fun. It's, it's so nimble, uh, a very small car, perfect for the hills here in Torino on a beautiful day. And uh, I, do, I still just love the fact that uh, because the roof is not electric, you can open and close that thing within, I think, less than two seconds, which is just amazing. And then if I'm if if you if it's a little, if it's without my wife and it's no more with my boys and a little more aggressive driving, I take the Alfa Romeo 4C. It's that uh, carbon fiber monocoque uh, race car that we have. Uh, it's basically a street legal race car. That's what it is. It doesn't it doesn't break with much comfort, um, but it's a serious race car, and and that thing uh, can all ask. Can I say these things? By the way, I don't know. But uh, it's it's a it's a fun car. You can take it to the track or again to the hill to the mountains. And then uh, lastly, uh, the third car again, red car is the Maserati Gran Cabrio Sport. Uh, that's the one we take down to Portofino or to the sea. It's 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 more of a relaxed drive. But you know you know everyone knows don't fuck with me because it's got that Ferrari V8 engine which you can unleash if you want. But it's it's more really an elegant car. It's, it's, it it has this big heart with a Ferrari engine. But it's it's uh, actually almost like wearing a suit and wearing uh, having sneakers at the same time. It's this beautiful compromise of elegance and sport, which I really like about it. It's got this vivid red that really explodes when it hits this when the sun hits it, and then the interior is almost this white leather, and that combination is just mind blowing. The sun sounds amazing. So who are who are some who are some uh, automotive designers that inspire you? Uh, you know what. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say. I mean, I respect a lot of them, but I, I don't. I don't really take much inspiration from automotive design, to be honest. I I, uh, I look at much other areas. I mean, I have I have the highest respect for someone like Tony Fadell, for example, uh, who of course worked with uh, with Jobs on the first iPod and the iPhone, and then later uh, invented design the Nest uh, thermostat. 
which is yep. which is such a such a you would think uh, boring household item, and he turned it into the coolest thing ever. And not only that, but but I think it was it was just uh, groundbreaking in terms of how it operates. That it has some intelligence. It, it learns of what you do, and it really reduces these kind of typical engineering approaches of, of thermostats with 20 buttons down to something that has no button at all but it's 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 just beautifully done uh, that's that that's something that really is inspiring uh, another guy with he's actually i would say half automotive felix Holtz. he was um he was the former head of hot wheels design he since left um and he now he does the hack rod thing i don't know if you've heard of it but he's basically building some really cool road, uh, um, hot rods and, and what really inspired uh, me when when you talked to him is is the way he does it. He's he's using generative design, which is you know you, you probably know it. it takes an object, you take the data, the strength, the weaknesses, and let the computer do its thing. It comes out with this kind of skeleton, nature-inspired shape that it suddenly saves like 30, 40 percent over a man-made construction. And he's he's applying that very very aggressively to the cars he's doing, and he's even trying to 3D print and the whole thing. So. Just, just his approach to things is just mind blowing, and uh, I would definitely check that out as Hackrod. And, and of course, then living here in Italy, uh, a different kind of design is, is what the guys here do fashion-wise. I'm not a, I'm not a label guy. I, I really couldn't care less about wearing. I'm not going to name any names, but you know the, the typical fashion labels. But once in a while, you stumble, a, you know, across one of these things they do, and you just gotta hand it to them. Just gotta respect what they do. And Zenia, for example, who we of course collaborate with with, with Maserati, they, they found a way to uh, cut leather into really really thin stripes and glue them together. So and then they use them almost like uh, a woven material. And they use they have a new collection. It's called Pelle uh, Tesuita, and it's like um, like woven leather basically. Like they take that leather. And they, they weave it and they create amazing things out of it. And that's something where I say, wow, that, that's really luxury, you know. Uh, it, has a, it has a great name, but it's not the tag that I'm after, but it's really something where they where they're truly do something fresh. So that's, that's more where I find my inspiration as a designer versus uh, what my peers are doing in the industry, to be honest. Right. So uh, I, I saw that, uh, you know, we follow you on Twitter and, and I saw that you were at Goodwood. And I, and I also saw that you had a picture with uh, Daniel Simon, I believe. Yes, yes. He kind of lives in our world. You know, he does like these science fiction, um, they're not necessarily automobiles, but crafts and, and different types of things for, uh, I know he did Oblivion. And then he does um, uh, Formula E. So it's a very uh, in line with what we do at Perception, you know, the, uh, the interfaces for the superheroes and then, of course, the interfaces for vehicles and other interesting technology projects. So how long have you known him and what was it like meeting up with him at Goodwood? Well, we've known of each other quite a long time, but uh, only recently we actually physically connected, which was wonderful because it was like, hey, finally we get the chance to really hang out. And and we did it, excuse me, uh, we did it extensively in Goodwood, of course, because he had the Robo Race car there, and uh, that was a pretty sweet project. Um, I I love his work. I mean, uh, you know, the thing with Daniel is, if you if you go through a design studio, and I can only speak about automotive design, maybe some industrial design studios. I would say when I started my career, so that's about 20 years ago, you probably saw Sydney books laying around on every designer's desk. I mean, he was the king of illustration. He was he was the one who inspired, and, and everyone had to have those books. And I would say then a few years after, uh, when when Star Wars was was starting to actually release books about the amazing artwork they had in their movies. Which of course existed before, but they were not the book. So when the, the second generation of movies came out, uh, so let's say ten years ago, I don't know exactly when it was, but 
then they could create these Star Wars uh, artist books. You know, that, that was the hottest thing to have. And it inspired a whole generation of designers. And I would say, fast forward to today, I think Daniel is doing that with his books that he's releasing right now. He has, he has this just absolutely amazing uh, conceptual art skill. The way he, he approaches uh, design is just mind-blowing. And, and uh, I think we can all be grateful that he, that he took the, the time to put it into print and, and release these books. Again, I think he's actually not just influencing a handful, but a whole generation of designers because, again, you find his books everywhere. And the stuff he's done with Oblivion, uh, of course, or now with the, uh, with the race car, uh, it's just fantastic. And he's such a such a humble and approachable guy. So if you if you ever meet him, just just you know look him up, hang out with him. Super cool guy. Yeah, we'd love to get him as a as a guest on the on the Perception Podcast. I think it'd be some interesting conversations. Absolutely. So let's let's move into uh, Maserati and and the decision to go electric. Can you can you talk to us more about that decision and why uh, you're leaning towards EV technology? Well, I, I, I can't share with you why why we do certain corporate uh, decisions. Uh, I would I would be out of outside my my role here, but but I can tell you, of course, as, from a design point of view, you know, um, being responsible um, for Maserati design is you, you you were asking yourself what would that mean if we were to go electric? What are the advantages? What are the risks? And it's actually been a, an amazing mental journey, and. Um, there's this beautiful video, which I know you guys are familiar with, uh, of this beautiful A6 GCS, which in my, from my humble point of view is the most beautiful Maserati ever conceived. And it's rolling through the streets of Brescia. It must have been after a millennial event. And uh, so there's this video of this car, and, and you don't hear the engine sound at all. It's just, rolling, it's just rolling through the streets. And we overlaid classical music over it. And we realized, wow, a Maserati can survive without this amazing sound. Surely, I love my Gran Cabrio because it's got the V8. But honestly, I realized Maserati is not only about the sound. It is, it is at that point, it became clear that Maserati was and continues and needs to be in the future about the sculpture. Because the electric and the car will have, uh, if at all, a completely different sound spectrum not have that uh, V8 naturally aspirated sound. It will have a different kind of sound, if at all. So, so sculpture, the visual stimulation, again, becomes super important versus the audible stimulation. And uh, that, again, brings me to uh, electric uh, propulsion, because if you don't have this big V8 block under the hood, but you have, uh, of course, you have tons of batteries and you have uh, electric motors, but they are totally differently packaged. They're not this one block you can you can lay them out differently, you can uh, have them in different parts of the car, which means that, uh, that that big package block, this this fridge under the hood went away, and you can actually do much more sculpture. If you look at cars today, the reason they all have these vertical front end and massive hoods is because of pedestrian protection, big engines. Mm -hmm. That's why all designs look, look the same, basically. And now imagine these, these big block engines go away. We can actually go back to cars of the 50s and 60s, 60s and do much more sculpture. So I'm, I'm actually very optimistic and super excited about that opportunity because I think uh, while we might lose the audible uh, stimulation, we'll get much more visual stimulation again. Right. And it, it's also an opportunity to uh, expand the interior as well, since you don't need to worry about the, the big you know, engines and things like that. Make, it, make, the, make the cabin a little bit bigger. 
Yeah, the uh, the biggest thing is that uh, that the big transmission tunnel goes away because uh, you don't need to get the power from the front engine to the rear. You just put different. Uh, you have separate engines in the back, so you don't need to have the transmission the propulsion shaft. Um, and you, you would either use the package space then for for batteries, as many people do, or you just uh, you just clear up the space and you get much more cabin space in that area. You're absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you what you think the perfect autonomous vehicle experience. Uh, would be like in, 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 in a vehicle, whether it be, um, you know, 5, 10, 20 years from now? How, how do you picture that uh, experience? Well, um, you know, I think there's examples today. Um, when you fly in a plane or when you take a train, in a way, those are autonomous ways of transportation. So the, the, the idea of, of being in, a, in, a, in an object that moves you from A to B without you actually actively commanding it, those examples exist. Uh, or take a taxi or take a bus, whatever. Um, and now the question is, how can we learn from these things and, and what are the positive and what are the negative aspects of these things and how do we can we put that into a car, which of course, number one, is a much smaller confined area than, than a train where you can get up and walk around or like in a plane or if you're in an Airbus 380, you can't just go to the bar. But, but I think the comfort of the seat, of course, uh, would be number one. Um, thinking about the things that you do or can do, you can either watch, uh, you know, look out of the window, watch a movie, or actually work. So, I mean, a high degree of connectivity, interactivity needs uh, mm -hmm. to be important. But those are the obvious things. I'm not telling you anything surprising there. But I think that the other two things that, that maybe one of them we partially discussed and the, and the, and the second one uh, not really yet, one, of course, is trust. Um, one reason a lot of people don't like flying is because they don't trust that damn thing, whether it's the, tire, the pilot, the, the, the technology, or the fact that they're sitting in the back and they don't really know what's going on. And um, I, could, I could see that could be one of the biggest hurdles with autonomous cars sitting in that, uh, in that entity, in that vehicle. And there's not even the knowledge of, of uh, a conductor or pilot sitting in the front, but it's really the machine. And I think the biggest thing will be uh, to to build trust between the machine and, and the passenger. And then lastly, um, one thing again that, that I think is, is, an, is, a, is a humongous challenge, uh, but I know we're working on that in the industry, is uh, don't underestimate motion sickness. Um, if, you, if you ever, and I haven't, but I know the stories, if you ever go, uh, were to take a ride in a U-boat, so you have no window and you're close to the surface so that thing rocks like crazy, you'll, you'll most definitely get seasick because you cannot connect what happens uh, physically with what your eyes see. And now in the car, obviously, and, and, and uh, you, you can look out the window. But the idea, of course, is the autonomous cars that I don't look out of the window, but I look at the screen. And, you know, some people do that today, kids in the back, passengers, and you have this situation with motion sickness. And there's a lot of challenges uh, to uh, us as automotive uh, developers, our engineers, to create a car that avoids this motion sickness. And we have to work very much on how the suspension reacts. How can you avoid the, the feeling of acceleration and deceleration, which today we actually enjoy. But if you're not actively driving, you might not. And actually, it might have negative effects. So there's a lot of new suspension technology uh, getting developed um, in the industry that... Um, and, and also the way we, we map roads, we scan roads, and, and we take that information, we pass it on, and uh, we know um, where there are the bumps. And uh, we also need to work 
carefully on acceleration, deceleration. That's all I can say at this point. But but I think this this aspect um, is also besides the trust issue one of the bigger obstacles of actually not actually taking the ride but enjoying it. Can you share any exciting news of projects you're currently working on at FCA? <laughs> Uh, well, I can't tell you, of course, we're working on this and that, but but uh, all I can say is, man, it's, it's absolutely crazy exciting uh, walking through the, through the <laughs> oh, series. Oh, you tease. I mean, uh, Central Steel is, 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 a, is a quite a big place, which is no surprise because we have, uh, you know, five friends here to take care of. But uh, just to have the honor, I would say, uh, the responsibility, the honor to touch an Alfa Romeo of the future, of Maserati of the future. Uh, it's just mind blowing, and and to be associated with those names and, and uh, have you know the trust of the designers who work on those projects. That's just mind blowing. That gets me to work every single day. That's unfortunately all I can tell you, but uh, there's uh, amazing stuff coming. I can tell you that. Well, thank you so much, Klaus. This has been incredible. Uh, true honor to speak with you. Thanks again for doing the podcast. Where can people find and follow you online if they want to get in touch? Uh, well, I don't know if I'm worth following, but uh, I'm hanging out on Instagram once in a while and on Twitter. I think if you look me up by my name, uh, I don't know if it's Klaus Busa or Busa Klaus. Uh, I'm not really uh, good at promoting social media, I guess. But uh, you, you, you'll find me and you can follow me on my adventures. <laughs> We're all car guys, and uh, I just love to talk about all the different types of vehicles uh, that you've been involved with and that we love to uh, to drive. So, again, appreciate Thank it. Also, thanks for being a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for being guest. Absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. Okay, have a good day. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.